Good morning, church. I want to begin by quickly asking the Lord for his help this morning. So let's pray again for a quick moment. Holy Father, I ask that you would be with this morning and help me to preach your word faithfully. Pray, Lord, that you would do the the miraculous, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And through it, Lord, that you would transform us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thanks. Felt pretty loud. I wonder if that's getting doubling up there. Okay. When I'm listening to my favorite music, I really, really want someone to love it with me. Right, we buy headphones that are split in two so we can hand the other one to the person beside us. Or sometimes when I'm in my car, I crank up my music really, really loud, and I have this like, weird thing where like, I feel like I'm, I'm sharing my, my favorite artist with them. Like, one day, when I get to heaven, they're going to be like, thanks for sharing that with me. Like, that was really good. Uh, we do things like that, right? We, we do it with music, we do it with sports, we do it with food, you name it. We share what we love. Because we want people to love it with us. We want them to know the same joy that we have. Brothers and sisters, it's a lot like that with evangelism. Of course, evangelism is a duty. It is a responsibility. But more than that, it's a joyous privilege. We get to invite people to know God. We get to share with them the thing that we love so much. Our goal this morning is just to dig deeper into that. What is evangelism and how can we do it better? But before we do that, let's think about uh, a couple things to review. Last week, we talked about conversion. We filled out what happens in the response part of the gospel story. Ooh, but before we talk about conversion, sorry. Last, uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we talked about the gospel. We looked at in great detail an outline for the gospel. We talked about God, man, Christ response. You remember that? God made the world very good, and then he made us in his own image so that we would be in relationship with him and give him glory. But man sinned, and we were separated from God. Then God sent Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserve to die, and he was buried. But three days later, he rose again, and he provided forgiveness for sins and reconciliation with God. And all we have to do is respond to Jesus' sacrifice with repentance from sin and faith in Jesus, and we'll be saved. On the last day, Christ will return, and he will sweep us away back into the fullness of relationship with him and the presence of God, where we will worship him forever and ever. So that's the gospel. Last week, we talked about conversion. That's when we filled out the last part of that outline, the response part of the gospel. Remember, we learned that people don't respond to the gospel by just needing to turn over a new leaf, right? Uh, As Sean said so eloquently, Jesus didn't come to make us nice. He came to make us new. And before any sinner can respond to the gospel, they must be regenerated. God has to come and do a miraculous work in our heart, right? Uh, Ezekiel tells us 
that God must replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again. Only when God supernaturally regenerates us can we then hear the gospel and then respond to it with faith and repentance. And at that moment, we are saved. So, that review is in place. A healthy church understands the gospel, and a healthy church understands conversion. If we don't steady our aim with a right understanding of those two things, then our evangelism is going to miss the mark. Okay, so that's in place. Let's take a deeper look at evangelism. I have two points for you this morning. Point number one, what is evangelism? And point number two, how do we evangelize? Point number one, what is evangelism? We've all experienced pain in our relationships. Many of us have had heated arguments with our best friends. Husbands and wives, right, we're, we're all too familiar with all the different ways that we can get at each other's throats. And sometimes these feuds, they can really start to settle into a relationship. And then worry and anger and sadness. They feel like a hundred pound weight sitting on our heart. The relationship begins to strain. And we feel like we're losing someone that we love. In those moments, what we want more than anything else is for everything to be okay again. We want the relationship to be restored. And that's what we call reconciliation. Evangelism is about sharing the good news of reconciliation, specifically how God is reconciling man back to himself. Ever since we were separated from God, his heart has been beating for reconciliation with us. And you can see it in the scriptures over and over again. There's this pulse throughout the Bible that God wants us to be back with him. And so that's what I want to do now. I want to track evangelism through the Bible, track the heartbeat of God. Like we said, God created man to be in relationship with him. But Adam's disobedience, it plunged us all into sin. And man fell. And the result of that is that we were separated from God. The pervasiveness of sin was so bad that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then God goes on to tell us, in human terms, how this made him feel. God didn't say that he felt apathetic. He wasn't like, oh well, I'll just make another batch of humans, this was just not a good one. He didn't say that he was angry, although I'm sure that he was. What did he say? God chose to describe himself as grieved. It isn't that the exact word that describes what we feel when relationships are falling into pieces. God's heart was grieved. The fissure between a holy God and sinful man was infinitely wide. 
But an infinite God had a plan to reconcile us back to himself. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God unveiled his promise to Abraham. God told Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here we see a kernel of hope. God will one day bring reconciliation to the world. I hope that amazes you, right? All mankind has ever done is continually grieved God. And we have shown no intentions of making our relationship with God right. And yet here is God promising to fight for the relationship. This promise to Abraham is the first shadow of God's plan of evangelism. It's the seedling starting to poke through the dirt. God is going to spread good news of reconciliation to sinners. And he is going to do it through Abraham. Fast forward to Moses and the Exodus. God allows Egypt to enslave Israel. And to the Israelites, it seems like God isn't keeping his promises to Abraham at all. But God knew what he was doing. He was about to start spreading good news, but it just wasn't in the way that anyone thought that he would. He tells us exactly why he let the Egyptians enslave the Israelites. Exodus Uh, I don't have the the verse, but he said to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be, be proclaimed in all the earth. In a world full of idols and mythological gods, the nations have become almost entirely ignorant of their creator. But God lovingly explodes onto the scene in Egypt with powerful miracles And he's he's pointing to himself and he's saying to all the world, I am here, I am God, and you have been made to be in relationship with me. In fact, we learn that this display of power actually does make converts in Egypt. Not only of the Israelites who see God do this, but other peoples that were with them. Exodus chapter 12, verse 37 reads, And the people of Israel journeyed on, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude, a mixed multitude also went up with them. Meaning, other ethnicities, besides just the Jews, journeyed into the desert to worship God. So do you see it? God is the first evangelist. People were separated God, separated from God because of his sin, but he proclaimed his excellencies to them, and now they worship him. And all of this is simply because God loves us, and he wants to be reconciled back to us. After the Exodus, God sets Israel apart even further. He makes them a nation of priests, and he gives them the law for the special purpose of showing off his glory to the watching world. If the exodus was the loud bang of God's glory exploding onto the scene, then Israel was supposed to be the echo. And that's the key. The way that God was showing off his glory and evangelizing the lost in the Old Testament was through Israel. Israel was supposed to be like a megaphone that was pointed in every single direction. This is the God who made you. 
This is the God you have rebelled against. And this is the God who loves you. Be reconciled to this God. So Israel becomes the come and see nation. Come and see this God. And sometimes Israel was successful in this, right? We, we see Gentile converts, uh, non-Jewish converts. Think of Rahab and Ruth. They saw the power of God at work in Israel, and they came to him. And they were reconciled to him, and they worshiped this God. But that's kind of the exception. Unfortunately, the refrain of the Old Testament is that Israel repeatedly fails to obey God. And they do not show off his glory very well at all. But the come and see nation of Israel was setting the stage for the good news to come. God will reconcile man back to himself. But how? Well, the prophets hinted at what was to come. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 says, And God says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In Isaiah 52, verse 10, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So who is this person who will bring light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth? Enter Jesus, who said of himself, I am the light of the world. I came to seek and to save the lost. How concerned is God with reconciliation? Through the come and see nation of Israel, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the grand finale of his evangelistic heart. God was not content to be separated from us. And so he took it upon himself to come to us in the likeness of sinful flesh. A holy God came to be with us in our filth. Think about someone who has sinned egregiously against you. Do you think you would give up anything in order to be reconciled with them? Wouldn't you hold on to that offense with both hands? Feeling like they're the ones that's supposed to make it right? God had every right to tell us to sleep in the beds that we had made. But he didn't. He loved us so much that he didn't wait for us to make things right. But he himself came to repair what had been broken. And so came Jesus. But he didn't just come to tell people about reconciliation. This is a good God. You need, to, you need to go and be right with him. Make up with him. No. He came to become the way of reconciliation. And this great love, it cost him everything. It's so important to God that in Isaiah 53, God says it was the will of the Father to crush the Son in order to bring us back to him. And so Jesus, he died a sinner's death for sins that he never committed. And one of the greatest tragedies is that he was brutally murdered by the very people he came to be reconciled with. I don't know if you're like me, but when I try to fix a relationship, 
if I am met with even the slightest bit of resistance, I will walk away feeling like I'm justified. Hey, I tried to do the right thing. I was trying to be the bigger man. You didn't want anything to do with it. Not my problem anymore. But not God. (laughs) When he came to reconcile us to himself, he was met with mocking and beatings and a cross. And he never flinched. He never turned away. Hebrews 12 tells us that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. What was that joy? Do you see that the joy was being reconciled with us, that things would be made right again? Joy. God is zealous to fix what has been broken. And so he endured the cross and he was buried. But praise God that three days later, God rose him up from the grave. And now he offers forgiveness for sins and reconciliation with God. The apex of God's evangelism. Look at my son. Believe in him and you will be saved. The world has never known a love this great. And it never will know a love that is greater. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, you and I are intimately aware of this love. We have been reconciled to God. So how do we fit into the story of evangelism? Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 through 21. Paul explains how we fit into the story beautifully. Unlike the come and see nation of Israel, we are to go and tell. Starting in verse 18. Salvation is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So you see that those who have been reconciled to God, we have become ambassadors of heaven. We are tasked with carrying out the evangelism that God has started. Maybe you've seen those videos that explain how a virus moves through a population. I'm talking about the one with all the dots that start bumping into each other and then spread like wildfire. Well, just like that video, when Jesus came, he bumped into his disciples, who bumped into their disciples, who bumped into their disciples. You can follow that all the way down the line to where someone bumped into you. And so now what do we do? Well, we're given the responsibility to continue spreading that same gospel. That's evangelism. That is the ministry of reconciliation. So I want to say that again because it's amazing. The way that God will evangelize the nations is through you. God making his appeal through Christians. We get to go to the world 
and say along with Paul, back in the text, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't it glorious that we are made right with God? And isn't it a joyous privilege that we get to tell others that they can be reconciled with this God too? Of course, we can't talk about evangelism without talking about the Great Commission as well. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These words are Jesus' marching orders to Christians everywhere. And notice again how starkly the strategy has changed. God had always been evangelizing the nations, but it's no longer come and see the glory of God, but go and tell all the nations. So Jesus tells the 11 to go and make disciples. And then the God of reconciliation says five little words that creation had been longing to hear for millennia. He tells them, and I am with you always. Now, I know that that is a lot, but we've reviewed the gospel, we've reviewed conversion, and we've dug into evangelism in the Bible. And the effect is, I hope that you have the the flames of your love for God fanned. I hope that you see how kind and gracious and wise God is in the way that he has come to make himself right with us. I hope you are chomping at the bit. I want to get involved. I want to be able to do the ministry of reconciliation better. Well, good. Okay. Let's get practical. It's probably as good a time as any to actually get a definition of evangelism down. So uh, some of you may remember our pocket-sized definition. Here it is. Evangelism is communicating the gospel with the aim of conversion. Communicating the gospel with the aim of conversion. Let's break that down. Evangelism is communicating the gospel. That means that evangelism requires writing or speaking some version of the gospel, whether that be the outline, God, man, Christ's response, or maybe it means walking through uh, creation, fall, redemption, return. Whatever outline you use, it doesn't matter. You just need to write it and speak it. So maybe you've heard the saying, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That, sound, that sounds really clever, like it rolls off the tongue. That was pretty good. Only, it isn't really true. If I'm being charitable, right, they, they probably just mean that our lives should communicate to people around us that we've been changed by the gospel. And that's a good thing. But that is not evangelism. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is no other way for someone to be converted. Now, while the way we live our lives isn't evangelism, 
is not the gospel message, is still very relevant to evangelism. Our lives don't tell people the gospel, but they either adorn the gospel or they take away from the gospel. That's why Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, let everything you do adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. If the gospel is a painting, then the way that we conduct our lives is the frame. A beautiful frame will highlight and draw special attention to the piece, whereas an ugly frame will detract from the painting. So we must live a holy and godly life so that we beautify, so that we beautify what we're actually saying and speaking when we communicate the gospel message. Next, notice in our definition that the aim is conversion. Why do I say it is the aim? Well, because when you understand that conversion is a supernatural act of God, then you understand that the best you can do is aim for it. You and I, we, we can't save someone in our own power. We can't do the miraculous. Only God can. We've seen that God has chosen us to make his appeal to sinners so they would be saved. We are his chosen means of evangelism. But don't ever forget, only God can do the converting once we've communicated the message. Now that we know what evangelism is, I think it would be helpful to look at a few things evangelism isn't. Evangelism isn't being nice. It's important to be kind. It's a, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And fruits of the Holy Spirit, they do the same thing as a lot of other things. They adorn our gospel message that we share. But being nice to a cashier or having a good attitude, while it's commendable, it is not the same thing as communicating the gospel with the aim of conversion. In fact, you will very often have to do things that do not seem nice at all in order to share the gospel. Think about it. The doctrine of sin. I mean, that's an especially hard thing for people to hear. You're not a good person, and neither is your grandma, and neither is your child. That's offensive. And then, to go further, you have to explain the fact that our sin deserves hell? I mean, that's, that's cultural anathema. You can't say things like that to people these days, right? But we need to make up our minds. And, and I'm pointing right at myself that we cannot just try to be nice in order to be a faithful evangelist. We're going to have to say hard things. You can walk with someone for decades, and if they never hear the gospel communicated to them, and they never believe and are converted, they will die, and they will go to hell, and they will just think that you are a nice person. We don't want that. Evangelism isn't doing apologetics. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So apologetics, it just means defending the faith. Think about arguing for the reliability of Scripture or explaining how science points to God. It's a good and it's a necessary work, but it isn't evangelism. It does, however, make our evangelism more effective. If evangelism is pointing someone down the path towards conversion, 
then apologetics is removing the barriers that are in their way. Just remember, we can't defend someone into heaven. At some point, we have to go in the offense. We have to communicate the gospel to them with the aim of their conversion. Evangelism isn't good works. We must love our neighbor as, our, as ourselves. If someone asks for our tunic, we give them our cloak also. If someone asks us to go one mile, then we need to be willing to go two. If we see our neighbor in need, then we need to be like the Good Samaritan. However, the great commandment does not need to be confused. It must never be confused with the Great Commission. If, if we end world hunger and put a shelter over everyone's head and take care of every medical need, but we don't tell them the gospel with the aim of seeing them converted, then we've only made them a little bit more comfortable before the judgment. We've loved our neighbor, but we haven't carried out the most loving thing that we can do, which is the Great Commission. Tell them the gospel. Good works without the gospel is like having all the Christmas decorations and no Christmas tree. And we can learn from Jesus on this as well. Jesus had compassion on the crowd who was always looking after them and doing miracles and taking care of them, many of their physical needs. But he also made it perfectly clear that his first and primary mission was evangelism. It was teaching. It was preaching. He said to his disciples, for example, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. For that is why I came. In the same way, we should prioritize evangelism while adorning our message with good works. Evangelism isn't praying for someone. Praying is talking to God. Evangelism is talking to man. Will, are you saying that we shouldn't pray? Well, of course not. Of course not. In fact, there are only two places in the Bible where Jesus says, pray this. And one of them is about evangelism. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus told us to pray to the God of the harvest, that he would raise up and send out laborers to collect his people. So, of course, we need to pray for the lost. We need to pray for evangelistic efforts. But the danger here is that we would let faithful praying scratch our itch to carry out the ministry of reconciliation. If you pray for the lost, then you also need to evangelize the lost. Lastly, evangelism isn't sharing your testimony. Testimonies are a wonderful tool in evangelism. But explaining what God has done in your life isn't the same thing as explaining how God can save this person that you're talking to. Your testimony can give credibility to the power of the gospel. It can serve as a launching pad into evangelism. But just like many of the other good things on this list, the, the risk is, is that by sharing your testimony and stopping there, you're going to let it scratch your itch to communicate the gospel with the aim of, the, uh, aim of conversion. Use it as a tool to help you evangelize, but it does not replace evangelism. Okay. Now that we know what evangelism is and what it isn't, let's think about how to do it better. So that's point number two. How do we evangelize?
because we live in such an individualistic culture, when we think of evangelism, we intuitively think of personal evangelism. How do I, the Christian, carry out the Great Commission and act as an ambassador on God's half? And that's good. That's, that's a really good thing. But it's just incomplete. Evangelism isn't only something that I do, but it's also something that we do. When the disciples received the Great Commission, they didn't separate and scatter. They came together and started planning churches, and they began gathering together daily to spread the gospel. Another example, Paul told the Ephesians that God was displaying the manifold glory of his wisdom through the church. Paul tells the Corinthians to pay attention to how they exercise their spiritual gifts in worship because he knew unbelievers were going to be there. So communicate in such a way that unbelievers can be saved. So while there are examples of individuals evangelizing, like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we need to also make sure that we don't neglect the fact that the church has a role in evangelism. When I say that, when I say that the church has a role in evangelism, I wonder what comes to your mind. You might be thinking of more church programs, or you might think it means making church services more seeker-sensitive, meaning the church should gear everything in its ministry towards the lost. But that's not what I mean at all. Uh, Those sorts of practices, while they're well-intended, they actually are very damaging to our corporate witness. An excessive amount of church programs and a seeker-sensitive philosophy of ministry, they often demonstrate a misunderstanding of three things, the church, the gospel, and conversion. So let me explain each of those in turn. A church is a gathering of Christians, not unbelievers. The church service, then, is for Christians. On Sundays, we come together to carry out all the different word ministries that God has given us. We come to pray the word and sing the word and read the word and hear the word preached and to see the word through the ordinances. It's the main time of discipleship in the life of the Christian. And it's the apex of Christian worship. Then, as the church scatters, the word of God continues to reverberate between its members as they live their lives together. That means it's a mistake to make unbelievers the main audience on a Sunday morning. I'm not saying that we should ignore that unbelievers will come. We want them to come. That's why we're gathered in public and having a public worship service. Like I just mentioned before, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul anticipates that unbelievers will be with believers when they come together to worship. So to any unbelievers in the room, I am glad you are here. But just know that church is not for unbelievers. Unbelievers are sitting on the outside, peering in on a worship gathering of believers. So, brothers and sisters, what that means is that we shouldn't change the main meal to accommodate for visitors. On Sundays, the flock is being fed. So that means the ministry of this church is going to serve up the word for the church, for the sheep. There's a knock-on effect of this too. When the sheep are well-fed, then they are strengthened for evangelism. We'll see more of that here in a bit. Similarly, an understanding of the church, a misunderstanding of the church, can lead to a lot of not-so-helpful programs. 
There are several problems with this. For one, it's easy to feel like you're doing something when you put a lot of effort into something tangible, like a complex Christmas play or a vacation Bible school. But oftentimes, we don't really see conversions, not the kind of conversions that we hoped. Programs can be a lot like eating cake. You feel like you've eaten, but you haven't really gotten any nutrition. Another problem is that programs can function like crutches. The only time people in the church evangelize is when the pastor is just on them, constantly pushing them to get involved with this program and that program and this program and that program, then there is probably something wrong at the foundation of the ministry. If the programs are taken away, are the members going to fall flat? Will evangelism and things that you expect Christians to be doing, is it going to stop because the programs have been taken away? If so, then programs, they're just, funks, they're just covering over the cracks. And before long, the foundation is going to give way. Also, just consider the immense cost of programs and time, talent, and treasure. And very often, uh, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Instead of sheep spending time inviting unbelievers to meals or gathering together to, to study the Bible or spending time over coffee and reading good books, well, they're over here painting a giant Easter mural. It's just it's not, it's not what we need to be doing. The programs that pull us away from the most important work are not useful. They're not helpful. The main ministry for you and for me is ministry of the Word. It's studying the Bible. It's praying with one another. It's all those things that we just talked about. Programs far too often pull us away from them. Next, a church focused on a lot of programs or trying to be seeker-sensitive usually misunderstands the gospel. A lot of program-driven churches they confuse what we talked about earlier. They confuse the great commandment and the great commission. They gather Christians together for a lot of good works and they push them and push them to get out there and, and do good in the community. Uh, but evangelism isn't usually taking place. It's just it's the, the great commandment is being carried out, but not the, the main point of the great commandment, which is uh, conversion. And for many seeker-sensitive churches, they're tempted to evangelize by watering down the gospel. They say, don't say mean words like sin or hell. And don't use specialized language like justification or repentance. That'll turn people off from the gospel. But brothers and sisters, does it really make sense to win people over to the gospel by changing the gospel itself? Imagine if I tried to convince you that soccer was a great sport, which would be pretty hard for most people in this room, I imagine. But then imagine I I changed the rules to include tackling and throwing an oblong ball and scoring in the end zone. Now you're like, hey, soccer sounds all right. But the problem is, is have I really won you over to soccer at all? Well, no, of course not. When the church goes to the gospel and starts trying to remove what they think is offensive and start taking out the details of the gospel so it's more appealing, often you find that you're just not left with the gospel at all. Paul says, in Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. We should just be like Paul. <laughs> Communicate the gospel boldly and plainly, and then let God decide where the chips may fall.
But you might be thinking, didn't Paul also say that he would become all things to all people, that by any means he might save some? Yes, he did say that, and I'm glad you mentioned it. (laughs) But Paul certainly didn't mean that he would alter the message of the gospel to make it more agreeable. He simply meant that he would remove any unnecessary, unnecessary barrier to the gospel. The context is talking about Christian liberties. He would gladly give up his freedoms if it meant that people would be saved. If he needed to give up alcohol, he would. If he needed to give up food offered to idols, then he would. If he needed to observe the Sabbath, then he would. He wasn't going to let his freedoms trump his desire to see people saved. But that's very different than changing the gospel in order to see people saved. A program-driven church and a seeker-sensitive church also demonstrate a misunderstanding of conversion. If you believe that men have the ability to cause people to convert, then whether you intend to or not, you're probably going to adopt some manipulative practices. For example, that church might institute the sinner's prayer, or they might try to get people to walk down the aisle to make a decision for Christ. But those aren't biblical practices. Conversion is something that God does, not something that men can force other men to do. Now, I'm not saying that God can't use these things. He can. We often say that God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. And this is one of those areas where God has, has used these things mightily to save many of us probably in this room. But we shouldn't teach that people are converted just because they make a decision, as if it's something that they can just do on their own. And it's not just traditional practices, right? Many churches try to take the, the churchiness out of church, whatever that's supposed to mean. And they do that in order to help people to become more comfortable with Christianity. If we offer more options for gatherings and hire the best musicians and have the best light show and get the best uh, and funniest preacher who will only say nice things, then we will win the lost. Friends, you may win crowds, but you're not winning hearts. It reminds me again again of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, and I'm, I'm just all too happy to read it a second time. Hear what he says, starting in verse 1. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone in the sight of God. So brothers and sisters, speak the truth boldly and plainly and let God do the work of conversion. Designing our churches to be seeker-sensitive and building out too many complicated programs and trying to manipulate people into making a decision for Christ, they don't actually help us evangelize. On the other hand, when the church is focused on feeding the flock and equipping the saints for ministry throughout the week, something powerful happens to our evangelism. And that's the last thing I want to cover before we dismiss this morning. When it comes to communicating the gospel with the aim of conversion, how does a healthy church help the Christian? I have five things a healthy church equips you with. They're pretty rapid. Five things a healthy church equips you with. Number one, the church equips you with boldness. Not a lot of people are bold. That's why we look up to people who are bold. They're an exception. One thing that makes being bold a lot easier, though, is by surrounding yourself with people you trust, like other members from your church. 
I was getting lunch with a, a, a brother recently, and the waiter came by, and he stopped her and asked her to pray with us over our meal. And then after it was over and she left, he looked at me and said, I've never done that. <laughs> it's just, it's like I just was feeling bold. I'm here with another Christian, and I just grabbed him, and I just started praying. Uh, another example, in a difficult discipline situation, a brother from this church grabbed me because he knew it was going to be hard. And so uh, we had to go to this other, other person and say, you know, plead with them, repent, repent, be saved. And it was just easier because we did it together. If a situation allows for it, plan for a member or two to join you in an evangelistic conversation. Number two, the church equips you with a Sunday service. You don't have to be the only voice communicating the gospel. Bring them to church. You know that here at Sixth Avenue, if you bring them into this building on a Sunday morning, they are going to hear the word of God throughout the service from beginning to end. You know that they are not going to get a watered-down gospel. You know that we're not going to just entertain them. You know that we are going to preach Jesus and him crucified. Jesus also taught us that the world will know that we are Christians by our love for one another and by our unity. There's something just simple about bringing an unbeliever into a body of people who just love each other. It communicates the gospel. It's weird that we spend so much time hanging out with each other when service is over. It's weird that none of us have any affinity with one another except Jesus Christ. It communicates the gospel. It helps people see what they just heard all morning. Use that to your advantage. You have a healthy church, so bring people to it. Number three, the church equips you with other gifted believers. Trust that God can use the gifts of your brothers and sisters around you. Maybe you'll find that someone you brought to church will build a relationship with someone else in the body, a like-minded believer who will help finish what you started. That's a good thing. That also means that when members come in with visitors, brothers and sisters, we need to attack them with our love. Very oftentimes, we're bringing someone in tow, and we're like, you know, I want the brothers and sisters to get after them, to preach the gospel to them, to, to, to teach them and show them the things that I've been saying. You know, think about the stuff where you're, you're telling some, someone the truth constantly, 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 never get it, and then, and then someone else comes up behind you and says the same thing that you've always been saying, and they're like, that just blew my mind. I can't believe you just said that wonderfully true thing. We can do that for one another. Let the brothers and sisters do that for you. Number four, the church equips you with prayer. At members' meetings and throughout the week, we share about evangelistic opportunities in the body. One of the simplest ways we can get involved is by asking questions, probing, hey, that person you brought, how are they doing? What can I do to, to get involved? What would be the most helpful way that I can, can be involved in their salvation? And then, of course, pray for them when you talk to them about those things. Maybe you don't feel like you can do much with evangelism. But remember, praying is not the same thing as doing nothing. God delights to answer the, people, the prayers of his people. And we've already seen this morning that God is absolutely delighted in bringing people back into relationship with himself. So pray expectantly. God can save people in this body. Number five, the church equips you with an example, with an example. The church scattered or gathered shows us how to be better evangelists. Good sermons and songs and prayers, they teach us how to explain the gospel better. That's when the church is gathered. And then watching believers evangelize out in the world 
It gives us a firsthand look at evangelism in action, and that's the church scattered. I've learned a ton about evangelism just by watching certain members in this church just go after unbelievers and teach them the gospel. I've, I've heard them explain the gospel to unbelievers. And on top of all that, I can see how the faithful ministry of Sixth Avenue is equipping us to do that very work. The church equips us with an example. One last note. Certain situations will not allow the church to be as hands-on. So if you find yourself on the battlefield and you're alone and it's time for personal evangelism, God has given you an opportunity. Do not tell yourself that it is someone else's job. I'm talking to myself. Don't fear man more than you fear God. Don't tell yourself that you don't know what to do and that you don't know how to explain the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it's better to try and to fail than to never try at all. You don't know what God will do. You don't know where that seed will land. Remember that you are being prayed for. Remember that you are equipped by this ministry. Remember that Christ, he sees your good works. And so with that in mind, I just want to encourage you, scatter seed generously wherever you go. In Matthew chapter 13, we read about the parable of the sower. Seeds can fall on all kinds of ground, but... God is the one who's responsible for the harvest. That's not your concern. You just need to be faithful. Just take up your ministry of reconciliation. Preach the gospel. Take every opportunity you can. Scatter the seed and let God take care of the rest. He is reconciling sinners back to himself. Give thanks to God that he has done this for you. And may our love for Jesus and our love for the lost and our desire to see people reconciled to God and to know this great God that we love, may that lead us and compel us to go and tell the world about this good news of reconciliation. And may the Father use this church to accomplish it. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown to us and taught us the way of reconciliation. Father, we pray that you would use us individually and us as a body to make your appeal to a dying world, that you are their creator, that they are in rebellion, that you love them enough to send your son to die for them, that they can be reconciled to you and that they can be with you doing the very thing that you've designed them to do, which is worshiping you in heaven with all the believers forever and ever. Lord, would you bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.